This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Let's pray. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives. For the glory of your great name. Amen. Please do take a seat. Now today is the fourth in our Advent series with Christmas itself looming over us, beginning very shortly. And over this Christmas series we've been inviting, we've been hearing God's invitation for us to come home for Christmas. We've had come home where you are known. We've had, uh, we've heard that we come home where there's a place for us. We've heard last week, we heard that there, there is an invitation to come home where we can rest. And today we are going to hear that we are coming home, we have an invitation to come home to where we are loved. Now, I want to ask you a question. Does anyone know which movie begins with these words? I'm going to put on my very best plummy English accent and uh, you can see, uh, put your hand up when you recognise them. Whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world, I'm sorry, my voice coach is uh, behind he knows already, my goodness. I think about the arrivals gate at Heathrow Airport. General opinions starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed. But I don't see that. It seems to me that love is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives. Anyone yet? Well, no, I know you know. Uh, anyone else? Anyone else? <laughs> what is it? It's from love, actually. That's right. Girlfriends, old friends. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. If you look for it, I've got a sneaking suspicion. Love, actually, is all around. And yes, that was my very best Hugh Grant. 2003's Love Actually. Now, it's a film that's deliberately targeted as an antidote for our troubled times. And what's fascinating about it is that along with Bruce Willis's Die Hard, it has become a regular Christmas movie. It's got this Christmas tradition. And perhaps that says something about our growing anxiety that the world is a violent and loveless place. And the film speaks, however soppily and sentimentally, to a really deep human need to know the love of others. Or to put it in the words of another movie, Moulin Rouge, to love and to be loved in return. Love is a fundamental human need. We just know this to be true. We don't need scientists to tell us this, but in case we did, the director of the Harvard Medical School's famous Grant study, which traced the lives of hundreds of men for 75 years, summarized the findings of his study by saying this, happiness is love, full stop. But our hunger for love is so great that we often don't think very clearly about it. We think that what we want from another person is adulation or affirmation or compliance or sex and that these things signify love. And when we don't get these, though they are not love, we feel unloved. If you loved me truly, then you'd never criticise me. If you loved me truly, then you'd adore me. If you loved me truly, then you'd affirm me. If you loved me truly, then you'd do what I say. 
Shakespeare's King Lear opens with the king, I don't know if you remember the scene, opens with the king saying that he's about to divide his kingdom between his three daughters, Goneril, Regan and Cordelia. And he's going to give them a test, first of all. And the test is this, how much, girls, do you love your old dad? That's not Shakespeare's actual words. So his first two daughters make these dripping, flattering speeches, full of praise for their father, gushing, and they get their part of the kingdom. The third daughter, though, Cordelia, won't play the game, and she just says, look, I love you according to my bond, according to my duty as a daughter. And so Lear, what's his reaction He gets furious and he says, you're not going to have anything. You get nothing, Cordelia. Now, only later in the story do we realise that Lear has been a fool. He's mistaken flattery and adulation for true love. The older two daughters quickly tire of their father. But only Cordelia, it turns out, will actually really love him, will sacrifice herself for him. If I'm honest... I'm like King Lear more than I care to admit. I need love, but I think I'm going to get it through flattery and adulation or through affirmation and approval. People telling me what I like to hear and not challenging me. But Jesus tells us that to know love, to know what love truly is, is something else again. We have to put aside its fakes It substitutes. We are too easily enticed by the things that approximate love but aren't really it. A bit like substitute banana flavour. You know substitute banana flavour? It it doesn't taste if you think about it, if you ate if you ate it or drank it without seeing the colour of it, you wouldn't think it was anything like banana. It's a chemical compound that you put in banana flavoured ice cream which has no connection to real bananas at all. Love, as the Bible teaches it, has two essential components, truth and sacrifice. God's love speaks the truth. It cannot be love if it's composed of fakery or lies, if it's dishonest. It's not loving to flatter us or to mask over our flaws. As the Apostle Paul says in that great passage from 1 Corinthians 13, love rejoices with the truth. Love is true, which is to say love is not blind. It is anything but blind. True love sees how things are with perfect vision. Pope Benedict XVI put it this way, Only in truth does love shine forth. Only in truth can love be authentically lived. Truth is the light that gives meaning and value to love. Without truth... Love degenerates into sentimentality. Love becomes an empty shell to be filled in an arbitrary way. In a culture without truth, do we not live in a culture without truth? This is the fatal risk facing love. Think about this and about your need to love and be loved. Because there's something fierce about this way of thinking about love. It poses an uncomfortable question to you. If love is really about the truth, then could I ever really be loved? 
If people knew the truth about me, would they actually love me? If my heart was exposed to the searing light of the truth, would I not find myself without love? Isn't that our deep fear? It's why we spend such a huge amount of energy covering up the truth, sometimes just the truth of what our bodies are really like, and operating what we think are more lovable masks, even to our most precious people. We're afraid, you and I. We are afraid of not being loved for what we really are because we can't see that what we really are is lovable. Now, sometimes we're silly about this, right? We're, we're silly. We, we think we're unlovable because our body shape is wrong or because we aren't clever enough or we didn't go to the right school or because we don't have the right social graces or we haven't achieved what we had hoped. We are ashamed of things that are actually not shameful. The truth that love speaks, though, is this. God, your creator, loves you not just despite of these things, but in these things. But there are those things we carry, you and I, that the fierce light of the truth makes us recoil from. These are things we have done, the lies we have told, the untruths we carry, the bitterness and malice that we carry around, the using of people for our power or for our pleasure. These things makes the love that speaks the truth almost unbearable. How can I offer myself to be loved like that? Because surely that kind of love will search me out and destroy me. Love speaks the truth. But to misquote Jack Nicholson, who can handle the truth? And that's where the second component of love comes in. In John's Gospel, we heard from John chapter 15, but back in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, we've already been told in that most famous of verses, John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. And now Jesus teaches us about love. In John chapter 15, he tells his disciples to love one another. And then he explains what that means by telling them in these famous words, no one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. The greatest love of all is not, though Whitney Houston does tell us, it is, it is not the love that's inside of me. That could only be the catchphrase of a completely narcissistic culture. The greatest love of all is the love that costs you. Not in terms of buying something or purchasing an object, but in, in terms of laying down yourself for the good of the other. And this was not only the love that Jesus commanded of us, but the love that he showed us by dying for us on the cross. And here is its link to the truth. God knows the truth about me. And the truth about me is mixed, to say the least. And that makes me afraid. But God's love sees the truth about me and doesn't ignore it or overlook it. He addresses my awful truth. 
From God's great love for the world, he gave me Jesus to die for my sins. The truth of his love doesn't result in my destruction, but ends up in his extraordinary mercy. It ends in reconciliation. It ends in peace with God. And it's a mercy that costs God because Jesus bears the pain and cost of my sin upon his shoulders. Now, God isn't flip about what I'm really like, shrugging his shoulders and saying boys will be boys or giving us all a certificate like primary school teachers these days have to do, no matter what we've done. He doesn't forgive me reluctantly or because it's too bothersome not to. His love for me is stronger than death. And this is what love is, actually. This is the Christmas love. And wherever I teach the marriage preparation course here at St. Mark's, I ask the couples to tell me their proposal story. And this has become bigger and bigger and bigger that every year it seems like each poor bloke has to outdo every bloke before him in his demonstration of his extra- the extraordinary drama that he has concocted in order to ask his uh, beloved to marry him. And I've noticed that these have become more and more outlandish and elaborate. So you've got proposals on the Harbour Bridge, you've got the proposal at the Grand Canyon, uh, and that poor lady, she'd been helicoptered, she's pregnant, she's helicoptered to the Grand Canyon feeling a little queasy, got out of the helicopter, had a vomit, was asked to marry, said yes, got back in the helicopter and went away. You've got proposals in Paris, in New York, in London, in Fiji, in Bali. You've got proposals, I'm, su- I'm sure I'm going to get a proposal um, from sky- in skydiving, or we're going to get a proposal very soon, which is a deep water, a deep, uh, deep sea diving, where the, the, the groom will take his, his bride, his fiancée down and find there'll be a fish down there with the, with the, uh, the, the ring in its mouth. And he'll open the mouth and say, will you marry me, blah, 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 and she'll say, yes. The marriage proposal has become the human version of the male bowerbird's nest or the peacock's plumage, an elaborate display to impress the female. He's got to show how much he's devoted to her by arranging this whole drama for her. The coming of Jesus. The Christmas story is God's proposal. It's his extraordinary declaration of love and commitment to human beings. He's gone to this length to show his love for us, to affect his love for us. He's telling us that if we want to know his love and truth and grace, we can experience it in Jesus. God loves the real you, not the pretense of you or the performance of you. And because Jesus laid down his life, that's not a frightening realization at all. And so the question to you is, the question that every bridegroom puts before his bride, how will you respond to this declaration of love? Will you say yes? Will you be persuaded? Or are you still unmoved? The movie Love actually begins and ends with the scenes of joyous reunions at Heathrow Airport with families hugging and delighting in one another. And it's a wonderful description of love and pretty nothing to, pretty much nothing to do with the movie, as it turns out. The Father in heaven is waiting for you to return home. 
As we've heard over the past few weeks, he knows you better than you know yourself. He's prepared a place for you. He invites you to come and rest in him. And today we've heard he loves you. So the father's at the airport waiting for you to appear. He's made his feelings for you pretty obvious. He's not giving you a love substitute. He's not telling you flattering lies or giving you the adulation you think you deserve. He's not going to be anything but searingly honest with you. But his love is fierce. It's fierce in its truth. It's fierce to the point of pain. It's the love that gives us not what we might want, but what we truly need. So this Christmas, come home to God where you are loved. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.